Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on. Let's go. Yes, you. Come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy. Nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy, your source of great health information that you can use in your everyday life. We made it to November, y'all. I'm recording this in October, though. Right now, Kanye is going to Skechers trying to sell his shoes. By the time this comes out, he may be at Five Below or at the container store trying to sell his shoes. Jesus, walk with him. Jesus, Jesus, walk with him. Today, we have part two of the series, I'm Too Young for This Ish. This week we have on my good friend, Angela Graves. Angela, or as I call her, Super Ange, because of all the things that she's been through and has come out so super as a result of this, is a native of Charlotte, North Carolina, and a graduate of Payne College. She is a certified math whiz. I remember one time I dropped some change and she told me how much the change was just based upon the sound. Didn't even ask her. She just said $1.08, and she was right. Angela was diagnosed with thyroid cancer at the age of 18, right before she went to college. We will dive into her diagnosis, original symptoms, and how it affected her both mentally and physically. So let's get ready to go on call with Angela Graves. And if you haven't done so already, follow me on social media at underscore Dr. Randy, and please fill out my short survey in the show description. I greatly appreciate it. Just want to learn about you, my healthy listener. So let's go on call with Angela Graves. So welcome back, healthy people, to another episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. On today's episode, we have the lovely Angela Graves, North Carolina's own, the best mathematician in the world, anime fan. What's good, Angela? Oh, hi, Dr. Randy. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. What's so great about the city of Charlotte? It's always evolving. I mm -hmm. grew up there, so I didn't I don't get to see a lot of the changes that a lot of people experience now. Um because I wasn't old enough mm -hmm. to go out or do anything. So but from what I hear it's like an up and coming city. People like to compare it to Atlanta, but I think that does it a disservice. I think it's its own its own space. It's diverse, similar to Atlanta. Uh, they have nice little downtown, midtown areas, but I wouldn't say that they're the same. But it's nice and up and coming. Very good for people in banking because I think Bank of America headquarters is there, and mm -hmm. yeah, that's. I think that's what's pretty great about it. <laughs> There's only one Atlanta, so exactly. it's hard because Atlanta has set the bar for everything. So we everywhere as far as black people in Atlanta. I don't know if it's like that in Charlotte, but definitely here in Atlanta, we everywhere, opposition. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I got Angela on today for this series. I'm too young for this ish. 
Yes, I have another great guest on for this series. And Angela was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, correct? Yes. All right. So about how old were you when you were diagnosed with thyroid cancer? It was three weeks after my 18th birthday. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that's that's very young to have that, especially at that time in your life. So let's go back to that original day. And when you started having symptoms, what was that like? Ironically enough, I didn't have any symptoms. I was doing my regular routine physical. You know, you have to get one before you go to college. And I was prepping to go to freshman orientation. And I did a physical and they were feeling on my neck and they're like, something's not right. You have this lump here and and it shouldn't be. I was like, hmm, it's been there for a while. It moves up and down when I swallow. They sent me to a specialist. The specialist said, okay, yeah, that's not normal. Um, this is a week after my 18th birthday. It didn't feel normal. And so they sent me to a specialist. The doctor said, yeah, that's that's not right. We're going to, we'll probably need to take a biopsy. I didn't know probably meant definitely because he went out of the office and got the biopsy things like just then. I was not prepared for that at all. Um, I'm sitting there in a tank top and a hat. My mom's sitting in the office because at that time I didn't have my license. So she's sitting outside the office and they're like, okay, come back with two syringes, a little, um, forgot what you call those things where you put the the cellular samples on it to look at it under a microscope, those things. Um, mm-hmm. a little he said, okay, um, yeah. He said, okay, tilt, tilt your head back. This is going to smart a little bit. Smart a little bit. Okay. So literally I just sitting in a chair similar to this in the office where I thought I was going for a consultation, tilted my head back, takes the syringe right into my neck wiggles it around to pull the tissue there was no numbing agent involved i had to sit there like just like this and they're like okay we need to get a second sample just to be sure did it a second time i got my Hmm. first tattoo on that day because i said nothing in the world could hurt as bad as that hurt like literally we left the office and i went i told my mom i wanted to go because mm-hmm. the 10-minute tattoo did not hurt like those. It it probably wasn't even 10 minutes, but the, the, the needle in the neck and the wiggling it around, it just wasn't it. So I never experienced any symptoms. And then two weeks after that, the results came back. It was thyroid cancer. Um, and they said it's the, the goiters, what the tumors called. It was pretty large and they wanted to operate as soon as possible. Um, but I wanted to start school. I didn't want to start like I didn't want to sit out my freshman year or or have to start later. So I was able to schedule the surgery the during our fall break. And so I went to school from August to October and I had the surgery on October 7th to, for them to take out my, they took my thyroid. Not only did they take the goiter, but they took my whole thyroid, which Sometimes, you know, you can get away with taking half of it, but they took my whole thyroid and most of the lymph nodes in my neck. So let's go back to that time when you had your actual biopsy done, right? 
how do, how were afraid were you at that time period? Like you went in there thinking you were going to have just a consultation. And the next thing that you know, they're doing an actual biopsy on you. I don't think I was, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid at that time because I didn't think anything of it. I was like, cause I wasn't having any, because I wasn't having any symptoms. I was like, there, there can't be anything wrong because it's, it's there. Mm-hmm. Like I poke it, it moves. <laughs> like there is, it doesn't <laughs> hurt. It, it, there's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't nervous at all. I didn't think it would come back to be anything. I definitely, mm. definitely wasn't expecting that. All right. Did, did, at that time period, did you realize the serious nature at that age for you? So when I got the diagnosis, yes. Um, And even then, I think they tried to kind of cushion it by saying, oh, this is common for your age. Or if <laughs> the craziest thing to hear, oh, if you could choose any cancer to get, you should choose this one because it has a high cure rate like is is that make it better because you know the word cancer doesn't feel like anything positive should come with that Mm. like i should feel (laughs) lucky that i got this one it's great Mm -hmm. out of all the cancers you could have got this was the best one this is the best one you know i'm like the c word people don't walk away from this and you're telling me like Oh yeah, it's a good time that you know you're 18 and it's a great, great one to have. It, it has a high cure rate. That makes me feel lows better, not <laughs> right. So you went to you went to college and start doing your first semester with this hovering over you in the back of your mind the whole time period. So what was that kind of like for you? That, that freshman year until you had your surgery? Um, I would say it didn't fa- it didn't phase me because I didn't know what to expect. Like I didn't know what was what was ahead. I would say I lived a pretty normal college life. I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I gotta change anything or you know, I didn't know how my life would change after the surgery. So I was just like you know, YOLO, like every other freshman, <laughs> freshman in college, it was great. I was having a, having a great time, but I knew, I think the one thing that I did realize is that I knew that when I left to get this procedure done in October, there was a possibility that I wouldn't be coming back. Mm-hmm. And that, that reality probably set in when it was time for me to go, like, trying to make sure my room was neat and I didn't leave any snacks in the fridge that my roommate had to throw away or anything like that, just in case anything were to happen. So tell me about what happened with the surgery. So you go back home and have the procedure, how'd that go? So I I went back home a couple days in advance and you know, when you think cancer, you think chemo, radiation, losing all your hair. So I actually made a hair appointment before me, my mom, my grandma. Well, I, I knew I wanted to cut my hair because I didn't want to look sick. Like I didn't want to look like, you know, if my hair was going to fall out, I kind of wanted to beat it to the punch. So I got my hair. This is the first time I got my hair cut in a short hairstyle. Um, my grandma cut the rest of her hair off. She had a short hairstyle already, but 
she cut her hair, my mom cut her hair, and I was just like, you know, I we were kind of standing together on that. Um, it was very, like, of course, you know, I grew up in the church, so my grandma was a deaconess, me and my, my, me and my grandma and my mom were all missionaries, and so, of course, they had the pastor and some of the prayer warriors from the church come in, and they're in the room while they're asking me these questions, and, you know, you're a freshman in college, you're 18, and they're like, hey, do you drink? Ah, can everybody leave? <laughs> Please get out now. <laughs> Don't look at me crazy. <laughs> Be like, oh yeah, sometimes I mean, it's, you know, freshman thing. Like only Don't when we take communion. Yeah, <laughs> only the wine. Um, and so it was a pretty well. I don't remember. Apparently, they said I after they gave me the first. However, anesthesia works where you're still kind of in that loopy phase before you actually go all the way to sleep. Um, mm -hmm. I was singing all the way back to the operating room <laughs> and talking about stuff. Yes. Uh, the procedure. You were singing hymns all the way back to the surgery room. Hosanna forever. <laughs> we worship we you. you. I don't know what I was saying, but my mom said I was singing the whole way. Um, it was a fairly, from my understanding, it was a fairly quick procedure. I think they said like four or five hours. I don't know if that's quick in okay. medical. No, nah, that ain't quick. That's oh, an well. existently long procedure right there. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a well, little maybe, bit above average. Okay. Well, and I think we'll probably get to that part. I met, I read my surgical report later on down the line and I, that may explain, and we'll talk about that later, but I had some things happen while they were operating. And so I think that may have extended it, but, um, mm -hmm. I woke up, um, they did the incision at the base of my neck. So that way, like when it was like healing, so that way it wouldn't be like this, like, Halloween looking scar type situation. Um, and they say it heals better at the base of the neck. Um, that I was prepared for. What I was not prepared for was I have four drainage tubes that they push through my chest into my throat to keep, uh, to pull the blood out to keep me from like drowning in my, in blood in my sleep. Um, I think that waking up with those was probably the most painful thing um, because they had to flush those tubes. And I thought the biopsy hurt. Flushing those drainage tubes, uh, that was right up there. <laughs> it was above the pain of the biopsy in the chair. In the chair. Uh, Man, I it almost made you go get another tattoo. I, w I would have if... Uh, I didn't, I stayed in the hospital for a week. So, um, but if I wasn't, I would have gotten another one that day. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to get blood thinner shots to thin the blood the, so it wouldn't clot in the tubes and stuff like that. So I think I was getting two of those a day and mm -hmm. if I recall correctly in my side, that wasn't fun. Um, 
I didn't, <laughs> to add insult to injury, they didn't, like I didn't have my birth control medicine with me. So after you miss a day, your body starts to revert back. So not only am I dealing with having, just having surgery, my body is now trying to have its cycle, which is a whole nother thing mm-hmm. because I couldn't submerge the tubes in water. So I wasn't able to shower. And it was just, it was definitely a lot. And I have like undiagnosed, not real life OCD about showering. And I really just have to shower or wash or something. And so it was very uncomfortable for me to be sitting in the bed where I couldn't move by myself. I couldn't even, because the the way the drainage tubes were set up, they were attached to a little cup um I think on the side of the bed and it wasn't like with my, with your IV thing, like you could walk around with it. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. So it was a, it was an uncomfortable time. I had visitors uh, maybe about the third day. One of my middle school, uh, one of my high school best friends, him and his friend came by cause their fall break was the end of our fall break. So he came by, um, and yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the most fun experience, I must say. Right. At that up up, yeah, up you until said, that point. Like Yeah, you shed some light on some things that I never really would think about, like them taking away your birth control and just the hygiene aspect and already going through a lot on top of that and not having those medications and being like hormonal during that time period too affecting our kind of your mental health during that aspect. Yeah, I I cried. I cried a lot. Maybe the first maybe the first mm-hmm. couple days. Like it was it was tough. It was painful. Like the healing process. It wasn't it wasn't fun. And up until that point I was like, you know, I'm this tough guy. You know, I wasn't thinking about anything that was to come, but it was really a eye-opening experience because I never expect it to be that way. And I think maybe by the third day is when they started giving me the hormone replacement pills and the, the, what it, what was it? It was like the, I, I, my body also stopped, I guess with your thyroid function, you know, it's your endocrine system. So your body produces a lot of stuff through that. And I think I was low in potassium, iron, um, calcium. And so I was taking two of each of those pills um, on top of having the Synthroid and whatever pills they gave me for pain at the time. Well, I still had an IV. So I think they gave me, if I recall, they gave me pain medicine through the IV. Um, Nothing too crazy. But I was, I had started taking like 11, 11 different pills, like a day. I went from mm. nothing to now having to keep track of this and that. And you can't take anything with the Synthroid because then your body won't absorb it the way that you're supposed to. So you got to make sure that you space that out. And then I finally, my mom, um, we got, we were able to get my birth control filled and I was able to get back on that to get that back situated that was, I think that was the 11th one of the other 10. It was just difficult. And I think at that moment I realized like, 
I don't, I'm not, I'm not normal anymore. Like I don't, like I have to manage this because if I don't, it could be the end of me for real. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that during the hospitalization that you shed some tears. What made you cry? Was it more so the realization of how serious the nature of what you were going through or was it the pain, all of the above? It was the pain. It was honestly the not being able to shower, like not like losing that autonomy, like even something as small as just being able to wash your body, like get into a shower by yourself. Like I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself because I had all the stuff connected to me. So I had to make sure somebody was there to, you know, make sure my tubes weren't getting disconnected and all that stuff. Um, just the loss of autonomy. And and then of course the pain. Like I never experienced mm -hmm. anything like that before. So you mentioned earlier that there were some, possibly some kind of complications with your surgery. Uh, you, like what happened? So I don't, I'm not fully, you know, I read, I read up on it because I'm like, there no, there's no way that they're going to tell me that this is perfectly normal for an 18 year old. Like, it's okay. It's so common. So I started doing my research and with that, um, when I was in college, they asked you to research a topic. And I think it was in biology class, a research that was a topic that was important to you. And I decided to research my condition. And so I went in my patient portal for Carolina's Medical Center, because that's where um, I had my surgery. And I read my um, medical report and it said something like, I had some sort of spasm during the operation. And I didn't really, I was like, I don't think that's normal either. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they mentioned that something had prolonged, like the doctor mentioned that something had, something happened to prolong the surgery and then reading it for myself, like, okay, I guess they don't tell you unless it's actually something to be like concerned about. If it was something that was life or death, they probably would have told my family, but because everything was, under control, I guess there was no need to mention it, but it was nice reading up on it and just being able to see like, hmm, okay, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't right. supposed to happen, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they probably turned up some medication, like, hey, she moving too much. She moving, she start, she's starting to talk. We know she <laughs> likes to talk, yep. <laughs> Somebody knock her out. <laughs> So what was your what was your official diagnosis after you had your thyroid removed? Like what stage were you in? Did they tell you what type of thyroid cancer that you had? So they didn't tell me a stage or anything like that, but I remember from my reading my um report, it was papillary i think that's the name of the first like it mm -hmm. was like papillary slash follicular and i think those were like the two of the basic ones it wasn't like a okay. like the ones that are further along but they mm -hmm. there wasn't anything that they discussed with me and at the time i don't think that would have been anything that we would have understood anyway 
All right. So you mentioned earlier about your your prayer warriors and your family that were around you during that time period. Everybody kind of got the the short hairdo and stuff to kind of support you. Like, how important was that for you to have that support system? It was, it was good. I, you know, it was nice that they cut their hair. They didn't have to, but it was nice that they did it for me. Um, and just having everybody be around. It was because I, I grew up in the church. Like we've never switched churches. I, the church, when my mom had me, is the same church I was going to. And even if I were to go back home right now, we would go to the same church. Um, so they've seen me grow up. So for me to have gone through something this serious, I knew that they would be right there for us, for me, you know, sending fruit, bringing, bringing food by the house, making sure, you know, people calling my mom, checking in on me, my grandma, uh, our pet I think our pastor came by after I got home and then one of our old pastors reached out to my grandma so yeah it was it was very important and I felt very loved and cared for this was uh did your mom uh, other family members express during that time how worried and concerned they were for you during this time period? Because you kind of mentioned earlier that you're going to college. You're like, all right, I'm going to just go to school. I'm, I'm going to get this surgery done during fall break. But, you know, as a parent, right, you, you're going to worry about your child. So did your mom kind of express to you her, her concern? I've seen, I can probably count on one time, one hand. Even now, well, now two hands. But at that time, I could probably count on one hand how many times I've seen my mom cry. And she cried the day I was diagnosed. And I think that kind of hit me because she was taking, I feel like she was taking it more seriously than I was. I was like, man, this is, this is whatever we, we going this is whatever. I'm going to be back to normal. You know, it's cool. And I saw, mm-hmm. and then she cried again when I was in the hospital, but she's kind of like me in the sense of she'll make jokes to get through difficult times. And so there was one picture she took and it it doesn't even make sense, but I'll never forget it. She was like, I look like the juggernaut from 13 ghosts, 13 ghosts. Cause I had the, the scars and they were still kind of bleeding and crusty and stuff. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. ma, but she was like, <laughs> she was, she was trying to cope with it because I, I feel like, you know, with me being a parent now, one of your one of a parent's worst fears is to bury their child and and i think she was finding different ways to cope because i think literally like a month before we had lost like an uncle like my grandpa's brother to cancer not thyroid cancer but another cancer and i think it was just like a lot at once and so she's not trying to show that she's worried so she's making jokes and taking pictures but inside, she's like, I want to break down. <laughs> and I can I can see mm-hmm. that now. Like, I can see that then. And I definitely can understand it more now being a parent myself. All right. So she was strong for both of y'all during that time period. She didn't have a choice. Right. So 
So did you ever think during that time period that you may have passed from all of this? Like, were you scared that you were going to die? From the surgery, no. It was other, there were other moments later on down the line where I started thinking, I definitely started to question my mortality. Like, is this, Mm -hmm. is this going to, Am I going to kick the bucket because of this? Because <laughs> um, <laughs> later on in college, I met some other people who've also had chronic illnesses. Um, it was another girl who had cancer and she had it one way and it came back another way. And there was a guy that I made friends with and um, he had Crohn's. And we would laugh and joke about chronic illnesses and going to the doctor because at that time, you know, I'm going to school in Georgia. So when I finally did go back to school, I would have to commute back and forth from Augusta to Charlotte to go to doctor's appointments. And we would talk all the time about going to doctor's appointments and things. And he went to one doctor's appointment and I never saw him again. And Mm. it was things like that that started making me question like yes this happened I was young this was the process to quote unquote cure it or um, remove the cancer was fairly easy but was it easy for other people too and that's what complicated their life a little bit further on down the line Mm So let's go talk about your recovery process. Like after you had your surgery, what happened after that? I went home uh, to mom's house. I I stayed out of school for a month. The first thing I did when I got home was what? Showered. Yes. <laughs> I just <laughs> finally showered. <laughs> that was the one, first thing I wanted to do when I went home. They had me on a... Um, a low iodine diet. So mm-hmm. like I I don't like salt anyway, like to season stuff, like Lowry's. But um it wasn't like I wasn't eating like super heavy foods. Um and then when I finally could eat and started back eating normal things and it it felt normal besides the fact that I had several different timers set for me to take medicines throughout the day because they couldn't have like I couldn't have certain things overlapping and I now have to take this medicine at the beginning of my day but if I take it I can't eat for an hour after and if it's dairy I can't have dairy for four hours after or otherwise my body won't absorb the synthroid the way that I'm supposed to or you know it was a lot of balancing and juggling with that that was the probably one of the more difficult parts and obviously eating after having a throat surgery was kind of weird after like some things in there missing it's kind of sore um and i actually i guess the side where the gorder was mostly on um i had some nerve damage there so i couldn't feel that side of my neck for like I had no feeling on the uh, left side of my neck for a while. So like I could touch it, but I know that I'm touching it. 
but I couldn't feel anything like on my skin or on my neck. So that that part mm-hmm. was kind of kind of weird. Yeah, like you like when you mentioned earlier that after you had your surgery, you're like not normal anymore. There's a new normal for you now and taking medications and not feeling certain sides of your neck, difficulty swallowing. Like what was that mental process like for you adjusting to the new normal? It sucked. (laughs) It sucked because I thought about all the times where maybe in college we'll go and stay out all night and then we'll leave the club and get Waffle House and then we'll go back to our room and go to sleep. And I don't have that. At the the time, I felt like I didn't have that flexibility anymore because I have to take this medicine on an empty stomach. And if I eat Waffle House at 4 a.m. and I wake up at 8, you know, my stomach isn't empty because I just had Waffle House. And... (laughs) Even to the the level of tired that I felt after, you know, obviously after your body's undergo and you have to, you've done some surgery, it doesn't feel the same. Like I was tired a lot and I couldn't figure out why I'm like, golly, I'm just, I just want to sleep all day. I just want to lay around all day. And, and it was my body getting adjusted to everything. And on the one side, I guess I can say it's good that I was so young because I still had the, I still had all the the young people stuff. I had the jeans. I'm still growing. My body's still pumping. Um, mm-hmm. So it didn't it didn't affect me as much. But those were the things that I had to consider. Like, yeah, we can stay out, but. I'm probably going to go home early or I can't eat Waffle House or because I don't want to have to take my medicine later, which impacts my lunch now because I have to take this one medicine with food and this one I can't take with food and I can't take the one without food with anything else. And just a, it was definitely a juggling act of medicine, food, life, really. Yeah, that's a lot of adjustments that you have to make, especially as being like a teenager. I know as adults and patient wise that people still have difficulty doing that in their 30s and their 40s. And now they're asking a teenager then going into your early 20s to manage your medications being away from home. You have nobody supervising you. This is kind of all on you to manage this. Fortunately, before I went back to school, I was, um, they decreased something, either the calcium, I think they both the calcium, either they decreased both the calcium and the iron, or they got rid of one of them. Like I didn't have to take it anymore because I was okay. So I think when, by the time I went back to school, I was down to maybe like six pills a day instead of the 11 that I had before. So it, it was still a balancing act, but it wasn't as many. So when did you feel like you started kind of getting a handle of everything or were there some complications after like finally starting getting your medications together, seeing your specialist or everything wasn't that smooth for you? I was 28. 
<laughs> I was 28. <laughs> That's when I started getting so a handle on it. <laughs> a years decade later. later, you finally, finally got it. <laughs> because I was, so, I was going to school in Augusta, traveling back and forth from Augusta to Charlotte. I wasn't driving at the time, so my mom would have to come get me. We go back. She bring me back. She go back. Sometimes the appointments would be 15 minutes. They may want to see my incisions, may not, may just want to do blood work, or maybe they'll send me the labs early and I can get the labs done in Augusta before I come home to my appointment in Charlotte. Um, my body was not regulating that fast. So I was on like almost constant increase of dosage. I And the reason why I say I didn't get a handle on it on, until I was 28 was because it wasn't until I was 25 that I was on a stable dose. Like that was the, when I hit 25, I don't know what happened, but my body seemed to adjust to the dose that I was on. And I've only had to increase um, twice since then. But before then it was constantly like an increase, increase, increase to the point where I looked it up. I looked up the high, what is the highest potential dose that I could be on um, like what is the, the highest dose that comes in a pill format before I have to do like some sort of hormone replacement or anything like that. And the, it was, it was, and then <laughs> I'm also, I'm going to a specialist, I'm going to an endocrinologist, but I also have a primary care physician who decides to check my labs as well. And the primary care physician is looking at my thyroid lab saying, oh, your dose, your your labs are too low. We're gonna increase your dose. They bumped me up to a dose significantly higher than I was on, um, without consulting with my endocrinologist first. That caused me to have like gastrointestinal problems because it was too strong and it was causing my stomach to burn. Um, so I end up developing ulcers. It was it was pretty bad. And my endocrinologist, they're in the same system. He wrote a note to my primary care physician, like, hey, don't change her dose. Like, you, I'm, I'm, I, I have this. Don't change her dose anymore. Stay out of this. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah. Quit touching yeah. stuff. I'm like, I got this. Scram. I'm the specialist. Scram. <laughs> this, this, this is my area. <laughs> you stay over there. And so mm -hmm. that caused like the, the the constant toggle between the primary care, the endocrinologist, like that caused issues. Um, I had to do the, I did radioactive iodine. So they call it, uh, what do they say? Like outpatient radiation. But that sucked because mm -hmm. I did the surgery over fall break. I set out the month of October. I went back to school at the top of November. Cool, finished up the semester left the semester um, to come home to do, to start prepping for the radioactive iodine because I had to be on a no, no iodine diet for two weeks prior to and during, or if I recall, yes. Cause it was awful. It was awful. You know how much stuff has iodine in it? A lot, a lot of stuff has iodine in it. And it was terrible. And it got to a point where I, I hate feeling nauseous and throwing up. So I would just eat frozen raspberries because I didn't, mm -mm, no, mm -mm. 
And so I ended up having the, I got the dose of the radioactive iodine. I want to say on like D, I, I feel like it was December 15th ish. It was to the point where I couldn't spend Christmas around my family. Because even even though it's considered outpatient radiation, you still have to keep your distance of six feet from another person. So I was pretty much isolated, quarantined to my room through Christmas. Um, I think I was good to be around them for New Year's, but through Christmas, it was it was tough. Like my mom put up the tree. I slept in the hallway so I could still see everybody and stuff. But you know, not being around them because I didn't want to cause any harm to anyone. It was very, um, that was very tough. It was, it was lonely. It was isolating. It, but I understood that that was something that I had to do to make sure that this was over. Yeah. That's the same thing. My, my friend Emery had to go through with him and his uh, hyperthyroidism. He had to do that radio iodine uh, treatment. So did you know that you were going to have to do that after you had your surgery or did something mm-hmm. happen where they said, well, okay, we didn't get it all. We need to do the radio iodine um, procedure. No, they told me up front that they were going to do that just to make sure that it's that it's all gone just because of the size of the gorder and the fact that they had to take my whole thyroid. They're just like, yeah, we need to make sure that it was all gone because apparently it had grown from the time that I had the biopsy to the time that of my surgery. So they just wanted to make sure they did a clean slate. Mm-hmm. So I mean, me and you have kind of talked about this before as well about the back and forth that you've had to go through as far as getting your labs done and seeing different specialists like, like talk a little bit about the downside of all that you have to do treatment wise following up to make sure that you're you're straight that's Uh, that's a technical term for those who don't know straight means okay good (laughs) gucci dr randy's using us uh the lingo around here the lingo (laughs) It, it was it was definitely a challenge like when i finally switched to an endocrinologist in uh georgia i was going to him for regular monitoring which was it was close it was local i was getting labs drawn every six weeks and it wasn't like a two and three vials it was like six six vials eight vials drawn at a time and i'm like golly what are y'all testing every other month that you need all this blood (laughs) i can barely i can save me some (laughs) save me some (laughs) (laughs) and and that doctor was that doctor was really good um i would say towards the i didn't switch over until i was towards the end of my time in augusta and i was about to graduate because i knew that i was going to stay in georgia and so i just transferred every well i didn't transfer because it's not the same system but i tried to get some make sure he had all my medical reports and stuff from before so that way we wouldn't be starting over from scratch but even then what one specialist sees like even among specialists they look at things differently 
because the specialist I had in Charlotte, he saw one thing and then I get to the specialist in Augusta. I'm starting to get labs. I'm starting to go on a monthly basis to get labs and figuring things out. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why am I increasing in labs? And one of my last few appointments with him was, he said, well, you're showing the presence of antibodies. And that means your body is fighting off something and you don't have any more thyroid left. So that means that this is potentially spread to your tissue or some somewhere else. So now I'm freaking out because I'm thinking, you know, if I got cancer and it's spreading to like tissue or bone or blood, that's something you can't you can't control that. You can't put a cap on that. So now I'm really worried. I go to see a specialist here in Atlanta. She says, no, you do have antibodies, but it's nothing to be alarmed about. That doesn't mean that the cancer is spread. Uh, you're, you're still very much cancer free and we'll, we'll do an ultrasound, but there's no cellular regrowth. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe they just wanted to operate on you. I don't know, but you're, you're okay. <laughs> and I've been with the same doctor ever since I moved here. And in the beginning with that super scary report, I was seeing her more frequently. I was probably getting uh, neck ultrasounds twice a year, uh, getting lab drawn still. I went from six weeks to eight weeks to 12 weeks. And now, you know, I've gotten to maybe once or twice a year and it's things have been regular. Like there's been no cause for concern. And even when, excuse me, because of my medical history, uh, my pregnancy was considered high risk. I thought that, you know, I started thinking about all of the crazy ways that this could affect my unborn child. Like if my thyroid medicine, I've even, you know, Google will tell you you're dying if you if you let it. <laughs> but I, I looked up on Google, like, what are the ways that this could have an effect on my baby? And Google tells you the worst of the worst. WebMD tells you the worst of the worst. Your child could be born without a thyroid. They could be born with hypothyroidism. They could be born with all of these things that you're, because you're taking this medicine to replace this organ that you no longer have. And my pregnancy was fine. She increased my dose by one pill a week. She increased my my dose by one pill a week and my baby is was ha happy, healthy, a full grown baby at, at and he came 3 weeks early. <laughs> so <laughs> like even the different the differences in the specialists because if I would have I couldn't imagine if I would have stayed in Augusta and not gotten a second opinion. I may have had, I may have gotten another surgery again and for no reason or, you know, for them to not have found anything. And now it's better because I don't have to go to the doctor as frequently because early on you go, Hey, how are you feeling? Let me touch your neck. Nothing's in there. See you in, see you in a couple of weeks. Boom. You get a bill for $350. You mean to tell me this 10 minute appointment just cost me $350 after, after my insurance? Oh, okay. 
I gotta do this for him. I gotta do this for the rest of my life. Okay. Is it stressful? But as time goes on, that's unfortunate. That's. Hmm. That's one of the unfortunate parts of medicine is those bills that we as providers may not know how much it costs for you to come see us every time. Or like you talking about earlier, getting your labs done on a regular basis. And that stuff adds up a lot. That, that's the, the unfortunate part of medicine that we don't talk about enough. The money part. Because mm-hmm. it got to a point where you, you get to a point where sometimes especially if you're working a job you really can't control which insurance providers you know your company has so if they decide to switch providers and now your doctor is out of network or maybe your labs aren't covered at the same rate and it just it it gets to be a little tedious especially if you're somebody like me who's going to get labs frequently or going to multiple specialists because of something else that may have gone wrong on a side of this. You know, it it gets gets to be a lot pricey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, is there anything that you would look back on that you wish would have happened differently during this whole process? Like individually, you or the health system, how you were treated in certain aspects, anything that you wish would have happened differently for you? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. Like, obviously if I could change something, I would change like having it, but that's not, uh, you know, that's not something I could change, but even that granted, I wouldn't wish my, you know, medical history or my experiences on the, on my worst enemy, but I feel like that's essential to how I've grown and developed as a person. If I didn't go through these things, I probably wouldn't look look at life as such a gift. I wouldn't look at everything every day, every breath I take, every, you know, painful moment. I wouldn't look at it as such a blessing because, you know, you could easily be on the other side of it. And one of my Mm -hmm. mantras that I've got from this is like when you've been at a point or at a place where your life is literally hanging in the balance, living tends to be the most important thing on your list. So I am, so I do. And that's how I live my life. Amen. Church Tabernacle Sanctuary. That girl over there preaching the good word. Preaching, preaching. So what, what, like, it just makes me think like another question, like, what would you tell yourself, like going back to that day, like when you were diagnosed, like, what would you go back and tell yourself? Like, if you can go back in time and have a conversation one-on-one. Get the big tattoo. The day I was diagnosed, (laughs) get the big, get the big tattoo. Don't wait. Don't wait until later on, whenever, get the big tattoo now. And <laughs> worry about everything else later. Because <laughs> I promise. <laughs> oh, man. She go back and say, let's help get the back tag, too. Get the, oh, yeah, get the, get the big one. So, <laughs> so I always end my podcast with Randy's random questions. So I'm going to ask you a couple of random questions. You ready? Okay. Oh, yes. She has that. <laughs> what, what are you up to, Randy? 
So question number one, what's the secret to a good wig? <laughs> good hair. <laughs> good hair. That's the secret to a good wig. <laughs> Where do you get the good hair from? Uh, you got to vet your people. You got to vet your suppliers. What one person considers good hair may not be considered good hair for somebody else. I've had some good hair from Amazon and I've also had some good hair from expensive hair from stores. And I've also had not so good hair from stores. So it just depends on what kind of hair you're looking for. All right. Y'all can always do like me and go natural, do the big chop. And you ain't got to worry about buying none of that hair. Just, yeah, just but come you got a $60 haircut. <laughs> Hey man, we balling over here. We can afford that a little bit. Once a month though. Once a month. Once a month. All right. Question number two. If you had to watch one anime show for the rest of your life, what series would you pick and why? Only one. You can watch every season, pick which episode. You can go from season two to season three, but you can only watch this one anime show for the rest of your life. Which one would Ange pick? My all-time favorite, Inuyasha. It's it's a classic. Um, this was a very hard question, actually, because Inuyasha is very limited in their seasons, but they actually have a spinoff, so I'm pretty sure that falls in the same category. So, uh, You cheat. <laughs> Why'd you pick that one? Because it's my all-time favorite. When I uh, started... When I first started studying Japanese and staying up to watch anime on Adult Swim when it used to only come on on Saturday nights, uh, that was the very first show that I watched and enjoyed. Um, Cowboy Bebop was on at that time, too, which I love Cowboy Bebop as well, but I always would fall asleep. It came on like 2 in the morning. Couldn't stay up for that. I was like, I was like 13 or 14. Sleeping with your mouth wide open watching that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and last question. If you had one word to subscribe your little boy, what word would you use? Precocious. Ooh. Okay, sad word. All right. <laughs> why, why would you describe him as precocious? Um. I feel like that's a good, I feel like that's the, that's the best word to describe him because all over the place just doesn't sound good when you're, you know, <laughs> I don't know that, that, that was the first thing I could think about. We just watched, we just watched Princess Diaries 2 and that was the word they used to describe one of the youngest princes in the, in the kingdom. He's a very precocious prince. My baby's a prince, so he's <laughs> precocious. All right. Shout out to the precocious prince. Um, he's probably somewhere looking some frozen strawberries around the house right now. I know he likes to get in his uh, his fruits on a regular basis. Definitely. <laughs> but thank you for sitting down with me, sharing your story. Hopefully it's, shared. it's an inspiration to those who may be going through something similar or have a family member. Um, any lasting words of wisdom that you want to drop on people? Uh, live life and tell your story because 
everybody can say what they would do if they were dealt a certain hand, but they're not dealt your hand. So play your cards. Hey, man, play that big joker and that guarantee on them. Uh, uh, I'm taking all your books. Okay, we're getting extra black here. Okay. We're talking about yeah, spades. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, but thanks, Ange, for sitting down. Thank Appreciate you for it. having me. Wow, that was an interesting story. A lot of great information that Angela shared. It shows the importance of paying attention to your body even when you're a kid. Make sure you pay attention to your body and help your kids to be in tune with their own body if you have children. Thanks for tuning in to part two of I'm Too Young for This Ish. I hope you enjoyed this mini series in the middle of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and check out my other episodes on other conditions, insomnia, depression, skin conditions, all those type of episodes are in my catalog. So just go back and scroll through them. Be sure to subscribe and check out my YouTube channel. Just go on YouTube and search for On Call with Dr. Randy. I will see you all next week for part three of the series, I'm Too Young for This Ish. We'll be talking with my best friend, one of my best friends, Henry Kincaid, who also had a thyroid issue. He had something called Graves' disease. So we'll talk about Graves' disease on the next episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. So be sure to tune in. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally. Mm -hmm.